This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's our new podcast for May 9th, 2022. And uh, we've now had over 40,000 downloads uh, for the podcast, which is you know pretty good considering there's it's really just word of mouth. And I appreciate the fact that it continues to grow, and I appreciate the loyalty and the positive emails and the positive feedback that I've been getting. Now, in, in this episode, I'm going to talk about something that occurred recently in my practice, and it was a client that I represented named Andrew Russo, who was the alleged boss of the Colombo crime family, a mafia family, and he died a few weeks ago on April 18th. And they waited until now to talk about it. And I wanted to sort of talk about what happened in that case, why it was different. And it it is, after 31 years of practice, I still have things that are very, very different that occur in my practice. You always find something new, which is one of the cool things about being a defense lawyer, is that you think that you've seen everything, and just when you think you have, you really haven't. This case started for me, I got a call on September 13th of last year, an old client of mine called about Andrew. He had been arrested along with 13 other alleged members of the Colombo crime family on federal racketeering charges in Brooklyn, the Eastern District of New York. And the case was apparently centered around this alleged extortion of a labor union and its employee benefit, welfare benefit plan. Andrew had been picked up that morning early by FBI agents. The old client of mine asked me how I felt about representing him. I mean, representing the boss of uh, the alleged boss of an organized crime family, you know, is not for everyone. Let's be honest. It's not the kind of thing that everybody wants to jump into. And you're thinking as you're listening, if you're a lawyer or if you're an aspiring lawyer, well, of course I'd want to represent him. You know, that's a, a big person. Well, it's not really as simple as that. There's a lot that comes with it. The clients naturally expect you to be focusing mainly on their case. They don't want to hear that you'll get to it when you get to it. They can be demanding. The government is crazy to convict these people at this level. They're just nuts. They view this as like the greatest trophy is to convict who they believe is a mafia boss. So it's a lot of pressure. You've also um, got a multi defendant case. In this case, there were. I think 14 altogether, and you've got to sort of be in charge of everybody and sort of direct traffic. It's not the easiest thing. If there's a trial, you're expected for the most part to do the main cross-examinations, unless, of course, there's a cooperator that has nothing to do with your client, but you're doing the, the crosses first. So the people that follow you can't repeat your question. So you're, you're really leading the case. And that's what I had with John Gotti Jr. There were only three defendants in that case, but he was the lead one. He was the alleged boss of the family. And uh, it was all me, and I did, you know, 95% of the work in the case, and some people are into it, some people are not. Me, I'm into it. I'm always looking for the biggest challenge ever. I'm not one of those lawyers that feels you have to play it safe and, you know, safeguard your career and only pick the, the right cases so that you'll look better. I just find that lawyers that think that way, and there are plenty of high-profile criminal defense lawyers in New York who are terrified of their own shadow and are constantly you know, chummying up with the, uh, the prosecutors and they want to make sure the prosecutors like them. The clients sometimes catch it. Most of the time, they don't. But I find that 
kind of revolting because these prosecutors, they're not your friends. And I'm not just talking about as the, as the, the, the clients, they're not their friends. As defense lawyers, they have about as much respect for a guy that's representing, um, you know, the head of a mafia family as they do for the mafia member himself. That's just how it is. So I was excited uh, to get that call, um, and I spoke to Andrew's grandson. I mean, Andrew was 87 years old, so his grandson, he wasn't 12. Um, he was, you know, a little bit younger than me. I was excited to get into the case because mainly there's a decent shot the case is going to go to trial. I mean, the guy's 87 years old, Andrew. What kind of plea deal can they give them that he can live with? He almost would have to go to trial. They offered him five years, which is low for you know, an alleged mafia boss. I mean, is he going to take a five-year deal when he's 87? I didn't know him. I hadn't seen Andrew Russo in years, probably when I was involved in uh, Colombo family cases in the 90s, and it's now 2021. But there's also nothing more fun for me than a mafia trial, mainly because they contain mafia cooperating witnesses who are the dumbest, the most violent. And for some bizarre reason, the government just falls in love with these guys. I, I don't really get it why, why they do so. They get away with everything, these cooperators. They lie their asses off in court. You know, they, they've killed you know, numerous people and they get two or three years in prison and the government doesn't even seem embarrassed by it. Also, you have such a great time embarrassing the prosecutors when you're in a trial like this because you really just push it in their faces. You push it in the public's faces you know, via the jury that look what they're getting away with. Look what the government is in bed with. How disgusting are these people? So that's fun. And as I said, the, the U.S. Attorney's offices in New York, and I'm talking about Southern and Eastern District, Manhattan and Brooklyn, they view a mafia boss as the biggest prize, and they'll do anything to convict them. So you've really got to be up for a case like this. You got to be on your A game, and I'm into it. So I was excited about it. I was excited to represent Andrew Russo. Now, the case was happening, obviously, last September was during the COVID period, obviously, and the courts in New York, naturally, because they're liberal institutions, they act as if COVID in September of 2021 is the same as COVID on, you know, March 16th of 2020. So forget that everybody's been vaccinated. Forget that you're now like, uh, you know, on Omicron and not the scary one where people were dying, that version of COVID. You've got masks in court, you've got distancing, and you've got special masks. You don't just have regular masks. You have to have those uh, N95 masks, which is you know akin to putting a plastic bag over your head and then tying it with a rubber band around your neck. But more importantly, there's no prison visits at this time last September. Um, you know, it was during a COVID period, and they just stopped allowing visits in prisons for years in New York. That's New York. You want to live here, you know, expect to be under, you know, the, the thumb of the most rabid leftists. I mean, they're just, they're just insane. So if you want to speak to or see a client, you have to make a Zoom call with the prison or a phone call. It's not optimal and it's not really easy to communicate with your client, but you really have no choice. Now, naturally, the government um, wanted Andrew detained. They wanted him remanded. That means no bail. And they filed this gargantuan um, detention memo that mentioned and had specifics on each defendant that was charged. And they were asking for detention on most of them. I don't think all, but just about. And of course, Andrew was alleged to be the worst. You know, he's a danger to the community, they claim. Uh, 
he's a flight risk. You know, the way you detain somebody is based on two different prongs. Either one of them would work, whether uh, the defendant is a danger to the community or a flight risk, you know, to not come back to court. Of course, the idea that, that Andrew at 87 years old, a guy who's lived in the same house forever, has always showed up in court for every appearance, and he's had numerous other cases before, you know, they, they don't care. Uh, they just, you know, say, yes, he's still a flight risk. And they trudged out in their memo tape recordings without a date. Just here's tape recordings of Andrew Russo. They don't even mention when it's from. And it ends up that they were, they used the same tapes to try to detain him in 2011 in a federal case. So now it's 2021 and they're still using tapes that occurred prior to 2011. But they were successful in detaining him back then. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, it is 10 years later and there's no violence attributed to him in this case. It's just like, well, I guess extortion is a, a crime of violence, but it's not like anybody put a gun in his hand or, you know, we hit somebody. But the truth is the government, the way they think is that all they really need to do is allege that he's the boss of a crime family and that's it. Getting bail for the boss of a crime family in federal court is impossible. It's really impossible because, as I said, one of the basis to detain you is danger to the community. And as a boss of an organized crime family, you're sort of a de facto walking, talking danger to the community. Bosses just don't get bail. So on paper, at least, we had a major uphill battle. And, and I didn't you know, know anything about Andrew, as I said. I'm just speaking to the family at the very beginning. But of course, I'm getting on top of every last detail that I can before eight o'clock in the morning on the day that I was called. But we had something going for us that led me to believe from day one that we'd get Andrew out. Now, as I told you in previous podcasts, in order to be a successful or a good criminal defense lawyer, you have to have some level of delusion to your personality. Because if you look at everything as a realist, you're never going to get out of bed in the morning. It's impossible to win these trials. You lose every case. That's what, you know, the statistics show. So why is it going to be different for you? How are you going to get bail for a guy who's the boss of a family, supposedly? And surely the judge is going to believe that. The judge isn't going to believe you about whether or not he's a boss. But you have to be delusional and think, this time it's different. This time I'm going to win. And that's how I am. I really am. Every trial I have, and I've told this to clients when they first hire me, I don't care how bad the case is, when I finish my summation, you'll believe that you're going to win. And if you don't believe it, I'll give you your feedback. That's how certain I am. And I said that to El Chapo. And I was very thankful that he did not ask for his feedback, but he did believe that he was going to win as well. But I did feel that we had some things going for us with regard to Andrew Russo. He was 87. He wasn't in good health, I was told. Um, despite the government claiming they had tapes of him, uh, of his co-defendants referring to him, referring to meetings with him, the family swore to me that he had been treated for dementia, that he'd been confused of late the last few months, that he wasn't leaving the house, um, and that in the few months prior to him being arrested, he'd been hospitalized twice. Once he had lost his vision and became disoriented and agitated in prison and had hallucinations to the point that he wandered outside of the hospital. I mean, he just walked outside. They just lost him. The second time uh, was in August, a couple of months before he was arrested, August of 2021. It was after a head-on car collision, which had exacerbated his cognitive decline. Now, the reason I'm saying this, the, the dates, 
is that things that happened in June and August of 2021 really can hasten cognitive decline. So them bringing tapes in from like a year before are mostly irrelevant, at least in my mind, because that's not the same guy who's appearing uh, for the bail argument. And um, sure enough, uh, the day of the arraignment, it was that day, uh, Andrew was not brought to the courthouse for his arraignment. He was hooked up to a, a phone line from a hospital where he had been taken when they arrested him. So I'm thinking, you know, there's something to this. You know, sometimes the family tells you stuff and they want things to be true. They want to believe things and they aren't necessarily true. But in this case, the fact that he couldn't even show up at the arraignment, I'm thinking, hmm, we may have a shot here. We ended up having a Zoom call with him soon thereafter, and he sounded okay, I guess. He was confused, though. He was repeating himself. He was definitely confused. He had been brought to the federal prison in Brooklyn after the arraignment and after he was hospitalized, but he was agitated in the meeting. He wanted to go home. He didn't sound like anybody's boss. He sounded like an elderly man in a place that he didn't belong in. And the prison as you, setting, as you can imagine, is not the place for an elderly 87-year-old man with some cognitive decline. It's very loud. It's very regimented. It's very hard for somebody like that to be able to take care of himself. I mean, it's not for old people. It's not an old age home. Over the next few weeks, we started writing a bail motion, and I, I, I felt that we had to get him out quickly because based on what I was told that he had been through and, and where he was at, mentally, he was going to go down quick in such a bad atmosphere, but we had to do this thing right. You can't just run to court half-assed because if you do, you're going to lose. And that's what actually had happened with uh, one of the other high-ranking members of the crime family, supposedly, who went for bail before I did, and she just half-assed that the lawyer was completely unprepared, and she got the, the shit smacked out of her by the judge. He ended up getting out on bail months and months later, but it was a complete waste if it had been done correctly the first time. I felt certain that he would have been out. So you have to really dot every I, you have to cross every T. And it's frustrating for people that want to get him out, but this is what you have to do when you have such a long shot for bail. You don't really have a choice. So we were collecting letters from his family and friends, and they were describing the cognitive decline that he had experienced in letters to the court. We spoke to the doctors that had been treating him before he was arrested, and uh, they wrote letters describing his cognitive decline and the fact they had treated him and given him medication uh, for some of these issues. And we wanted to speak with him again um, one more time as we were finishing the bail motion. And uh, we call the prison up to set it up, and they tell us that he's no longer there. We're like, what? The family didn't know. We weren't told. No one from the, the prison or the government had even alerted us that he had been removed from prison. We didn't even know if he was alive. So we frantically made calls to the United States Marshal, to the government, to the prison. We were calling and calling and calling. Finally, they told us, this is like two days later, they told us where he was. They said, look, we're going to tell you, but you can't tell anybody. Well, my position is, what the hell do you want from me? I'm just the lawyer. You can't just take him and hide him. This is like public record. Well, he's in a nursing home in Queens. And this was just 23 days after he was arrested. So that was highly unusual because you don't get put in, in a nursing home. I'd never heard of this from a federal prison. I mean, the federal prisons, they act as if they can treat anybody and everybody for every 
possible medical affliction. And there's been elderly people in prison before. It was very suspicious to me, and things are adding up. I mean, they're putting them in a in a in a, a, a old age home, a nursing home. It's crazy. So we tried to go visit them, and they refused. They said, you know, COVID, blah blah blah. And we said, look, you know, we have to see him. We're making a bail application. We're, if we have to get a court order, and incredibly, they actually relented without us having to make a request for the court. We couldn't have Zoom calls with him in the nursing home, so they really had no choice. So we went to go visit him. And it was on a Friday, I guess it was sometime in October. It was in, um, I guess, early October. We went to see him. And what we saw when we got to his room was frankly shocking. He was in a single room, like a small room by himself. It was like a hospital room on a small twin bed. And he was handcuffed by his ankles to the bed with two U.S. Marshals armed in the room with him. And we walk in and we're like, whoa, what the hell? They told us he was only allowed off the bed, you know, to have the handcuffs removed from his ankles to go to the bathroom. <laughs> there was obviously no treatment he was receiving. There was no exercise. There was no nothing. He was completely, you know, agitated. And I was stunned that this kind of thing was happening that was allowed. They could chain somebody to a bed 24 hours a day. But, you know, no one knew that he was there. Uh, the government didn't even know when we called them. And I asked the marshals, I'm like, can you take these things off? And they're like, no, we're not allowed to. But they said to me, you know, look, he's obviously not a danger to anyone, but we don't have a choice. So Andrew was confused. He was desperate to go home. Didn't even know where he was. Um, didn't know what borough he was in. I mean, how could he? Um, and he just wanted to get out of there. He wanted us to make a bail motion. And we told them, look, you know, we've got to get all these medical records. You know, we had no idea why they had moved them. Nobody would talk to us from the MDC, the prison or the nursing home. So you have to get the medical records and make those records talk to us. And he looked at us like we were crazy that we weren't immediately going to court to get him out. And I had to tell him, look, we're going to get you out hundred percent. I said, I'm, I'm really pretty certain. And I, and I meant it. I, I really felt we were going to get him out. And you know, as a defense lawyer, you have to have some good judgment or otherwise you're never going to be any good at this. I just felt that there's no way that a judge is going to allow this, even though he's the alleged boss of a crime family. It just seemed insane in America. And this was a, a hard time for me also to do this emotionally, personally. We went to the nursing home to visit the very sick Andrew Russo. That was actually October 15th of last year. My own mother had died in a nursing home less than two weeks before. And that's where I had to go see her the last time, you know, dead in a nursing home. So walking into this one to see Andrew Russo, I had like the hair on the back of my neck uh, was up. But this is what it is, man. You don't, you want to be a defense lawyer, be prepared to be uncomfortable, be prepared to get abused, be prepared to have to sacrifice. It's not really for the lazy. It's not really for the people that are bashful. It's for people that are willing to get, you know, get slapped around in life. This is what it is. If you want to do it, you just you eat a lot of shit. That's what it is. So after seeing the state Andrew was in, as you can imagine, we left there. It was a Friday and we immediately subpoenaed all the medical records from the MDC and the nursing home because now we had reason to believe that they had made a determination that there was something wrong with them. And that never happens in the MDC because, as I said, they always 
tell you that they can take care of these guys no matter, oh, he's got uh, 17 forms of cancer. Yeah, we have a physician's assistant who's really good at that. Oh, your client's been dead for a week. Yeah, that's okay. You know, we'll give him some electroshock. He'll be fine. He's been dead for two weeks. Okay, that's where we draw the line. He's actually dead. That's really how they treat you. So we, again, we didn't have anybody who would speak to us. So we subpoenaed them and we were like aggressive with it. We subpoenaed, we followed up over the weekend. I wish we could have just run into court for bail, but we had to see what was on these records because maybe they could be helpful. Why else would they have moved him? There had to be a reason. Courts don't give bail for crime family bosses. So we had to painfully dot every I and cross every, every T. The courts feel if they die in jail, so be it. That's their thinking. You know, that's how judges think. They're not here feeling bad for the boss of a crime family. They're thinking, hey, you put yourself in here. It's really the truth. You like to think that they're objective and fair, but they're not. They're really not. Even with John Gotti Jr., um, in the, we moved for bail in the fall of 2004 after he was indicted. He had spent years in prison for a racketeering guilty plea. I wasn't representing him then. He was clearly no danger to the community. He had showed up to court every time. He had been in jail for all these years away from everybody. We offered to have him released on the most strict house arrest with electronic monitoring, with visitors that would be restricted to his home, no cell phones, no computers. We tried all of this. And yet the bail was denied because of his alleged status in the Gambino family. And believe me, it's a lot harder to fight a case when you got to go visit a guy in prison to discuss the case as opposed to having him come to your office. I mean, it takes hours and hours of each day are wasted. Now, the moment the trial was over in John Gotti Jr.'s case, and he was acquitted on some of the charges, he was hung on the rest, uh, Judge Shinlin immediately ordered his release on bail. As I said, judges presume that organized crime defendants at that level will lose their trials and receive long sentences, so why bother releasing them on bail pre-trial? But after we got that result, Judge Shinlin relented, which was amazing that he was out. So let me get back to Andrew Russo. We subpoenaed the nursing home and the federal prison for his medical records. We called a day after day to get them, and finally they arrived. It was quick, and they were voluminous, and these were just the ones from the nursing home at first. And what we saw in there was shocking. We were reading them as fast as we could and putting them into our bail motion. In the very records from that nursing home, um, which, as I said, usually they say they can treat anything, they said they couldn't treat him. And that's what it said in the nursing home. It referred to the prison, said that the reason he was moved there was because they couldn't treat him. And here's what some of the medical notes said from the nursing home after he was moved from the the MDC prison. And I'm going to quote. Resident is 87 years old, came to facility walking, escorted by two guards around 9.15. Resident remains alert and verbally responsive with periods of hallucination, screaming, and calling some names. After that, nothing happens. Ate well, able to walk to the toilet, restraints on both legs, skin remains intact. Here's another one. This is an 87-year-old male, Alzheimer disease with dementia, major depression, being transferred from the jail because of being old and therefore cannot be kept close to other inmates. As I said, it was incredible that the, the prison gave up on them, and they've had older prisoners than that. And then what we read after that shocked us. We had gotten these records 
just three days after we had visited Andrew. We hadn't spoken to him since because it's not easy during COVID to get in touch with the defendant. And what was he going to tell us? But there was a record from that very morning in the notes from the nursing home. They faxed us, faxed us the records. And that very morning, just a couple hours earlier, was the final note. And it read, call to patient room by nurse, complaints of chest pain, vital signs within normal limits. MD made aware and ordered nitro sublingual, I guess that's under the, the tongue, and aspirin. Treated for chest pain, then transferred to hospital. Per EMS team, patient noted to have bundle branch block on EKG they had performed. Patient transferred to Kingsbrook Hospital via EMS, that's, you know, ambulance. Doctor aware. We were like, holy shit, he's not in the nursing home anymore. He's in a hospital. He had had some kind of heart episode, and they had transferred him there to be treated. Again, no one alerted us. No one alerted his family. They had no idea if he was even alive still. That's how bad things were. We tracked him down to the hospital, and we demanded to see him. And we go to see him, and we were just shocked by what we saw. Both of his eyes were completely black. And I'm not talking like you get punched in the face and you have a little bit of a black eye underneath you know, your eye. It looked like he had been beaten. He had black underneath his eyes, like down halfway down his cheek. It looked like he had makeup applied. He looked like the ultimate warrior, the wrestler, in terms of like the eye makeup, but it was black. It was shocking to see. Of course, we took out our phone and surreptitiously took a picture because I knew we were going to need that. He was confused. He had no idea where he was. He said that he had fallen on the ground and hit his head. We asked for medical records about this fall because it looked like he had gotten beaten. I don't know what happened to him. And in the records, the marshals who were guarding him claimed they were with him the entire time when he fell. I guess they found him on the ground. And they said, no, he didn't hit his head. And I think what had happened was when he fell, the black eyes don't happen immediately. They take some time to sort of surface on the skin. And of course, the marshals looked at him and didn't see anything black on his face. So they just said, no, we were with him the entire time. He didn't hit his head. They obviously lied because then, you know, a day or two later, um, or I guess, you know, really quickly, because we had seen him three days later, the black came out. It was a miracle that he didn't fracture his skull, we thought. So our bail motion, which included a picture of Andrew with his black eyes, was submitted, and we would have to wait a few days for the judge to set the date for the oral argument. And you know, that was incredibly scary because we didn't know if he was going to live to this argument. We were frantic, and we really felt that if we didn't get him out, you know, we knew that he was going to go back to the nursing home after he was done with the hospital. He'd be chained back to the bed. Who knows if they put him back in prison, wherever they were taking him next, he might die. So, you know, again, keep in mind that the standard the government must meet in order for any defendant to be kept in custody is they have the burden of showing that there are no conditions which will reasonably assure the defendant's appearance for court and the safety of the community. That's the law. So we uh, had a court appearance. On that case, for all the defendants, before the uh, argument had been set, we were going to have it any day, and I go into court. Andrew was excused for that day because he was in the hospital. We told the court, and the uh, government consented. Every other defense lawyer in the case had seen our bail motion. We had filed it publicly, and 
they were certain he, it was going to be denied. And I was like stunned. And I'm like, did you read it? Well, yeah, but you're not getting bail. You know, these are like, like experienced mafia defense lawyers. And they're like laughing in my face. Like, there's no way this guy's getting bail. He's the boss of the family. And I'm like, listen, he's getting out on bail. And they're laughing in my face. I mean, really, it was, I was shocked that anybody could think otherwise having read the papers. But this is what it is to be a defense lawyer. You know, be prepared to lose a lot. So in the interim, before the argument, after we submitted our papers, we get the medical records from the prison. And in them, they described Andrew's dementia and his Alzheimer's, which they diagnosed. Their doctors inside the prison uh, diagnosed it. The government doctors. And they wrote that they were unable to care for him, that he was being sent to the nursing home for palliative care, which means no treatment. That means you make the guy comfortable until he dies. It's like, you know, going to hospice if you have cancer. It's like the very end. So it was clear that they couldn't treat him and they were just getting rid of him and trying to put him in a place where he'd die comfortably. Of course, being chained to a bed by your ankles 24 hours a day is not exactly the happy place you want to be in as you cross the Rainbow Bridge. What was incredible to me is that the government, after having read all the papers, after having read the medical records that we had sent them as well from the prison, they refused to acknowledge the truth about Andrew's condition, and they were fighting like crazy to keep him in the nursing home. In their papers, they responded. They wrote that Andrew was simply forgetful at times, that the medical diagnoses uh, uh, just showed memory loss, that he was still very dangerous, and that he was receiving competent medical care at both the MDC and at the nursing home. They actually wrote in their papers that Andrew was receiving, and I'm quoting, around-the-clock care, um, and that he has, quote, provided rehabilitation at the nursing home with consults by dietary specialists, recreation specialists, and social services staff, and that counsel had lodged no specific accusations about the shortfalls in the medical care. I mean, what the... It was complete lies. It was complete fabrication. Don't you think our bail application, which was in a matter of weeks after he was arrested, don't you think that was uh, some of specific accusations about shortfalls in medical care? We don't have access to his doctors. They don't talk to us. We couldn't even have access to Andrew. So how could we know whether or not he was getting proper treatment? It's not like he was calling us and complaining. He had dementia. It just was a completely ridiculous set of papers that they put in. I mean, I was, I was absolutely stunned that they thought that it was appropriate. It was so cynical. So we informed the court that uh, Andrew was chained to a hospital bed 24-7, and we were informed by the marshals, as I said, that he was only allowed off the, the handcuffs to use the bathroom. And they made it sound, the government, that he was playing shuffleboard and finger painting at this wonderful assisted living facility. I mean, dietary specialists? The guy was like half out of it, laying on his back, chained down recreation specialists? Well, you know, you can move your arms and you can wiggle your toes. I mean, you've been inside assisted living facilities. They got a, a bunch of old people and they're sitting there half dead, but they're, you know, watching a movie or they're, you know, they're exercising, doing yoga. They're doing something. The government lied to the court. That's what they do. I know it's hard to believe, but they do it. 
And I was really appalled, but I, I suppose I wasn't really fully surprised. This is the government. When they want you, they don't give in very easily. And the prosecutors are oftentimes people that are so ambitious that they'll do and say anything to win a case. They don't care about justice. They just don't. And if you think they do, you're a fool because they don't. They ignored the medical records. They ignored his serious cognitive decline. They ignored his being chained to the bed and just relied on the fact that he was the boss of a crime family. And usually that's enough to win, which is why they took that position. They basically were like, fuck it. We're going to throw this in and the judge is going to do what the judge always does and, and leave him in jail because he's the alleged boss of a crime family. But I really wasn't having it. I, I was infuriated. And that's sometimes how I get. Because to me, this was not a battle of the medical experts. It wasn't our experts against theirs. It was their doctors who diagnosed them. And it was the prison facilities, the government prison facilities, which said they couldn't care for him. Doesn't that say something? And I was dying to get to the oral argument. I was just dying. Just because I just wanted to get my hands on this prosecutor. And it was a bloodbath. It was an absolute bloodbath. It occurred on October 27th. It was about, I guess, uh, six weeks after he had been arrested. I was crazed to get my hands on this guy. I was personally very offended by the government's assistance that he would be taken care of better in federal custody at the nursing home where he'd be chained down 24 hours a day to a bed, then he would be at home surrounded by his family and have the ability of, of his own doctors who've been treating him for years to see him. And it's typical. I, I got very angry and very nasty during the argument. Um, I can't help myself when I feel I'm right, which happens not all the time, but I, I was like, I'm right here. I made the case that the government was killing Andrew Russo very quickly in the nearly six weeks that he'd been in custody. And as I said, it was their doctors who claimed they couldn't care for him. It was their doctors who claimed he had dementia and Alzheimer's. And for the government to say now that he doesn't have these things is going against their own doctors. You know, normally you have your own doctors uh, look at a patient and there's a, a, a charge of bias. Well, the government's doctors are lying for them. Your doctors are lying for you. And I have to, the judge has to figure out what the truth is somewhere in the middle. We didn't have that. It was, we were using their doctors, their prisons against them. We offered very stringent conditions of release. We didn't care what they were. He wouldn't be able to leave the house, couldn't go visit his lawyer. We'd have to go visit him. Um, he, he would have a list of people that could see him uh, that were allowed in the house. There would be you know, just no cell phones, no computers, just a hard line. We didn't care. We just had to get him out of prison as soon as possible because he was going to die. And he wasn't even facing a huge amount of time in prison, you know, relatively, because as I said, it was just an extortion case, but whatever he was facing was surely going to be a death penalty for him because of his age and his health. And I argued that he didn't deserve to, to have the death penalty in essence, because of this case, it just wasn't fair. And this was done on zoom publicly. It was a public zoom and anybody who knew about it was capable of watching it. It was recorded and I was pissed. You know, they didn't have like the court reporter because as I said, it's Zoom. They don't do that in federal courts, you know, before or after COVID. Everything's done in person and everything's done transcribed with a, a court reporter and it's not recorded. But I was crazed. What I did is I, I noted also as part of my argument that you remove an Alzheimer's patient from his home where he's comfortable 
from his daily routine, and it just exacerbates the cognitive decline. It hastens it because now they're in a new place. They're confused. And when you put them in a, a loud prison or even a loud nursing home, it's not what they're used to. They're very confused more than usual. And I, cl- and I said that the allegation by the government that we were inventing his conditions of Alzheimer's and, and dementia was absurd because it was the government's own prison doctors who diagnosed them and wrote it in the records, not our expert. And I was shocked that the government just, they made that position with a straight face. They knew that the records were from their doctors that came to that conclusion. I also noted that the suggestion that he's getting good care in this nursing home was absurd. He's chained down to a bed. And I uh, finally said that the government's claim that the Andrew Russo of October 2020, a year earlier, is the same guy after he had uh, had hospitalized twice, after he was in a head-on car collision. It's absurd to say that it's the same guy. His condition was documented at having advanced rapidly. So I'm going to play you a couple of minutes of it, and you can actually find all of it on my website, on my law firm website, jeffreylickman.com. You can go to the In the News section, and there's a link to the audio of it. Um, not the video, the, the audio, although the, the video was, you could see me foaming at the mouth and my, the steam coming off the top of my head. But you can hear the entire, it was over an hour. And Andrew um, was hooked up to a telephone line at some point from the hospital to hear it. And you can hear in this period how jacked up I was. And this is kind of how I sound in court. I mean, I was really, you know, I've been described as be a, as a smothering defense lawyer. And that's not always uh, the best thing, but I was just, I was nuts. You'll hear it now. I want you to, to listen to this now. And this is uh, from the bail argument in federal court in Brooklyn. When you take somebody out of their very comfortable understood position where they've lived for a long time and you start jostling them around when you have patients with dementia, you have patients with Alzheimer's. And that's what all the records say. The idea that this is, you know, something, some fantastical uh, allegation that we're making, it's their doctors. It's their doctors that have said it. The idea that he doesn't have this and that this is good for him to be locked down and chained by his ankles to a bed 24 hours a day. Is that the type of treatment that the government claims that they can offer Mr. Russo and he can't get better treatment at home? Well, he's comfortable at home, Judge. What happened in May and June is not what he is at on October 27th or whatever day today is. He is rapidly declining. He is rapidly declining and something needs to be done or he will be dead in a few months and we'll all come back here. We'll all scratch our heads and say, wow, that's really unfortunate that we had this opportunity to extend his life. But because we're so desperate to punish him and put him in jail because we claim that he's the boss of the Colombo family. Judge, the types of things that I'm saying, I mean, does anybody really think that he based on the records that you saw that he's making decisions now at the end of October that anyone's listening to? Plus, you've got these massive conditions that are in place. We're not letting him out. If he breaks any one of these conditions, he goes back to prison. The family forfeits $10 million. They're allowed to tap the phones. They're allowed to enter the house anytime they want. They're allowed to approve a visitor list. Since when are these conditions so easily circumvented? And how is he going to circumvent them? They're going to have, they, they, can, they can watch him 24 hours a day. The government doesn't even address, they put it in their letter. And frankly, it was ridiculous. The idea of oh, these are, these are, Poo-poo these, these restrictions. They mean nothing. Everybody gets around them, judge. 
Nobody gets around these restrictions. He's going to be on strict house arrest. They'll be able to determine who's allowed in the house. We're not going to challenge that. We just want the man out so that he can die peacefully at home with his family, as opposed to being chained by his ankles and the great care that they gave him. He fell on his face. They had multiple officers there. He fell on his face. He could have died. And then they lied about it. That's the type of treatment that he's going to get. And that's only after a few weeks. Let's see where he is in three months. As I said, you know, having just listened to that, you can hear how, how crazed I was. And, and this is like, this is sometimes how I sound in court. Suffice it to say, we absolutely obliterated them. And the judge, who was exceedingly fair, you know, everybody's got some experience with elderly people who've got dementia, Alzheimer's in their family. You know, this isn't like 1950, where that kind of stuff didn't happen as much because nobody lived that long. Nobody lived to 87. Nowadays, every person who's in his 50s or even earlier has dealt with a relative who's had this. So everybody's had the personal experience and the prosecutors were acting as if, you know, this was just ridiculous, the, the arguments we were making, but the judge was exceedingly fair. She granted Andrew bail and he was out of jail, um, a, a day or two later where his family took care of him. And as you could listen in the argument, I said, you know, if you don't get him out, he's going to be dead in three months. And his family uh, took care of him. Uh, they adored him. And you can tell a lot about a man by the way his family feels about him. Whatever he's accused of, whatever he's uh, alleged to have done, if his family adores him, if his family worships him, it, it does say a lot about the guy. And we didn't speak much in the months that passed because, you know, he had dementia. What am I going to speak to him about? The case? We got the discovery. We listened to it. We went through it because the government at that point was asking for a hearing um, as to whether or not he was capable, he was competent to stand trial because now that he had been out and we had made these claims of dementia and Alzheimer's, they had to ask for a competency hearing. If he passed the hearing in the sense that it was believed that he was unable to help in his defense, assist in his defense, he would go to a facility and it could be for as much as three months. Actually, it's a minimum of three months before they determine that he's not getting any better and then he's released and the case is, is dismissed. So we were concerned that if we lost, I didn't think it was possible, if we lost and the uh, court determined after we put on experts, after he showed his records, after perhaps he was examined under oath, I didn't think that we would lose that because then he would have to go to trial with the other defendants. I was fairly certain that they were, uh, the court would find that he was incompetent to stand trial, but I was sick about it because I knew they would take him out of the home where he was out on bail and they would put him in a hospital setting. And as I said, for a minimum of three months, that's what the law is. And they determine whether or not the person's getting better, but it's not, it, when that law was made, it wasn't for people that had Alzheimer's that was not reversing. Alzheimer's doesn't get better. It's for people that maybe had an injury or were insane and they could get better. It doesn't happen that way with Alzheimer's or dementia if anybody's ever had a family member that's been through it. So I was nervous that the government was going to force us to a hearing. And while we might win it, he would go back into, you know, a hospital, prison hospital setting, which was like nauseating to me. To the government's credit, they never pushed the hearing. They never pushed it. They never, we told them, look, you know, he's still um, at home. He's not really able to see doctors. And they believed us. And it was the truth. And to their credit, 
um, while they fought us like, like maniacs at the beginning, which I thought was completely inappropriate, they backed off. He ended up dying and ended up being less than six months after he was released on bail. And it was sad for me. It was sad for the family, but it was good to cheat the government out of their ghoulish win because that's what they wanted. They wanted Andrew to die in custody as a prisoner. That's what they wanted. They wanted to make that point to the public, to organized crime. We're going to grab your people and they're going to die in prison. And it was a sweet win in that sense. Get him out. He died as a free man, not as an animal in a cage. And that thrills me to no end. And I know there are people that are listening. Well, you know, he was the boss of a crime family. Listen, fuck you. You know, this is, this is the work I do. I'm not here to make value judgments. I'm not here to make moral judgments. I'm here to defend somebody accused of a crime and provide them the constitutional rights that are guaranteed in this great country. You don't like it? Move to Iran. They don't have any constitutional rights there. And if you're gay, be careful because your neck is going to be snapped hanging from a crane soon. Now, I'm going to go on to another subject completely, briefly. I spoke about a little bit on the Wednesday podcast about how there's this awful double standard uh, that exists in the world um, when it talks about Muslim terrorists, when we're talking about Muslim terrorists. The world expects Muslim countries to be dictatorships, because so many of them are. And the world accepts the fact that Muslims don't want democracy in these places. They don't want freedom, even though a lot of the times they're held down by these dictators, you can guess, which is why there was the Arab Spring. But a lot of times the Arab Spring just turned to another dictatorship, just a different dictator. So the world just looks the other way when Iran is shooting dissidents in the street, hanging gays. President Obama, when they were having the Green Revolution in Iran and there was an uprising and thousands of people were put down, were killed by the, the terror leaders, he barely said a word to, uh, in support of them. Didn't lift a finger to help them because this is what he expected from Iran. No one expects them to be even remotely civilized. And when you negotiate with them, there's just this wide berth given to them to allow them to terrorize their citizens, terrorize their neighbors. And the world just acts like it's okay. Because listen, this is what we expect from them and you can't expect them to change. But you, on the other hand, when you're dealing with them, because you're civilized, you have to behave in the most civilized manner. And as I said, Iran is paying terror proxies all over the Middle East to kill their neighbors and Still, somehow, America is negotiating with them on this nukes deal instead of just launching missiles and killing the people in charge and changing the regime. Similarly, as I said, uh, the Palestinians are run, their elected leaders are a terror group which happily straps bombs onto children to kill Israelis. They shoot rockets at civilian areas in Israel. They celebrate when children are killed in Israel. They hand out sweets to people. This is how sick, how sick the society is. But Israel is expected to make pinpoint strikes in response to avoid civilian casualties and to warn terrorists to leave civilian areas before Israel responds uh, um, to their rocket fire that they start. This is the new status quo. This is what exists in the world. And I'm talking about Israel because of what happened this past week. It's a double standard. It's a, a new status quo where God forbid anyone say out loud, that this double standard is caused by the fact that no one on the planet actually believes that the Palestinians are even remotely close to being civilized humans. It's why only Muslims are allowed to pray 
at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, an area controlled by Israel, an area which holds a, a very holy mosque to Muslims and a very important site for Judaism. But the world freaks out at the thought of Jews being able to pray at their holy site on their land, which is close but not directly next to the mosque. It's not like they can see people, Jews, uh, praying at their holy site because the world knows that Muslims are not capable of controlling their violent nature and they'll need to slaughter people if anybody but Muslims are praying in the area. I mean, it's a ridiculous double standard. Normally, you'd be like, what are you talking about? Everybody pray equally and everybody gets the same rights. No, no, no. It doesn't exist when it comes to Muslims. You have to do what they say. Otherwise, they're going to light themselves on fire. They're going to blow themselves up. They're going to commit terrorism. They're going to be trying to kill children. So the world just pretends that this status quo, that this double standard is okay. Years ago, you couldn't uh, even discuss why people who drew cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad shouldn't be murdered by Muslims. You just had to take it because this is what they are. We have to pretend that this is normal behavior. Instead, you had world leaders like Barack Hussein Obama, a Christian, by the way, <laughs> saying publicly that the future must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. Obama, as I said, is a self-described Christian. He defended Islam as much as any Muslim zealot named Hussein ever did. The reason I'm, I'm going back into this is that as soon as I discussed this on Wednesday, in the last podcast, two Palestinians snuck into Israel and used a hatchet and knives to slaughter three Israelis, innocents, not soldiers, not somebody that was shooting at them. And it left 16 children without fathers. This slaughter was just the latest in Israel by Palestinians. It's now about 20 dead in the past few months, all caused by their elected leaders, Hamas, the genocidal terror group. They're the, the head of the government of Palestine. They called for the attacks, including they said you should use hatchets and knives. They directed these people to do this. They caused it, and there's literally no response by Israel other than trying to capture the killers, which they did on uh, Sunday. They captured them. They didn't even kill them. And why? Why is, is nothing else done? Because of this double standard. Israel expects the Palestinian government to be wild, violent animals, which they are. They used to assassinate these terrorist leaders from Hamas to stop the group from continuing their, their terror attacks. But they haven't done anything like that now anymore. They've talked about it publicly. They're wringing their hands. You know, do we kill the leader that called for these murders? I mean, shouldn't there be some punishment? Or should he just be continued to be permitted to foment this, these murders? They, as I said, they talked about it publicly. I suppose floated a trial balloon. The Israeli public is nuts about it and wants their, this guy's head to be taken off. It's only fair. But the response by the head of the Palestinian government, this Hamas terrorist leader who caused uh, these latest terror attacks, he was shocked. They were shocked, Hamas, that Israel dared to suggest that the person who caused all of this should be held responsible. And their response was that if Israel does this, if they dare to hold us responsible for animalistic, uncivilized, Muslim terror ways, that they'll return to suicide bombings and burn Israeli cities as if uh, Israel went back to this targeted killings program. Quote, we will burn the cities in, the, uh, in Israel's center and launch missiles at Tel Aviv if Israel acts on these threats. 
those of which surpasses the enemy's imagination. So if Israel does a pinpoint strike to kill the guy responsible for killing uh, these Israelis with hatchets, if Israel dared to do that, their response with a straight face, Hamas, is that we will blow up innocent people. We will launch rockets at innocent people. This is the double standard, and they expect the world to be okay with it, to understand it. If you kill the terrorist leaders, which we find to be deeply offensive, we're Hamas, we will kill your children. And that's just how it is. They can say that with a straight face. You've got Rashida Tlaib. You've got Ilhan Omar, you've got AOC, the most anti-Semitic in two of the three cases, Muslim terror supporting, actually they are Muslim, uh, all three of them are Muslim terror supporting, saying that it's crazy for Israel to think about killing the Hamas terror leaders. This is what they're saying. They expect the whole world to agree with this equation. If you kill the terrorist leader who killed these two men with hatchets, we will kill your children with suicide bombs and missiles. And you're supposed to say, well, of course, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, I'm not saying that killing this Hamas caveman solves the problem with the Palestinians. I don't think it is. I'm just saying that he's, he deserves to be droned, and he should be droned. Not today. Last week. Palestinians love Hamas. They'd vote for Hamas to take over all of Palestine. Right now, Hamas just has leadership and they control Gaza. But in the West Bank, they're way more popular than the Palestinian Authority. I mean, they're all over the West Bank. It's just a matter of time before they take it over and kill all the Palestinians uh, that are in the Palestinian Authority there. They're in the middle of, I don't know, what is it, 15 years of a civil war? They're in a civil war, Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. They expect to have their own state, but they can't even get along with each other for 15 years. They're killing each other. Anyway, as I said, you know, that people say, well, you know, free uh, Gaza from Hamas. Well, it's not true. They love Hamas. Stop pretending that the Palestinians are being held hostage, that they're actually innocent, decent people. They're not. They have stores named after Hitler. They openly hate Jews. They're like 98% in a poll are rabid Jew haters. These are not nice people. They're fucking maniacs. Period. But you have to drone the people that caused this. You can't just say, we're not going to do it because we're afraid something worse is going to happen because then you keep on having terror attacks. When you commit terrorism or you send people to do it, you need to be liquidated. I don't care if it changes anything. I simply want the people that are responsible to die for it. But as I said, the double standard continues. Hamas is a terror group that Israel could destroy in a few days if it so choose, but it would require some ugly stuff. Uh, Hamas gets to dictate the violence because they know that Israel is civilized and won't simply destroy the Gaza Strip. Hamas members are hiding in civilian areas. They're hiding behind children. They're putting their rockets in hospitals, under hospitals, in schools, in UN schools. Why? Because they're hoping that Israel will kill civilians. They can use it as propaganda. And people like Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, these are enemies in our Congress. They hate America. They hate Jews. They hate Israel. They want the innocents to be killed in Gaza so they can be used as propaganda against Israel. They don't care about their children. They strap bombs onto their children. They strap bombs onto their pets. They don't care. Just because they're human beings doesn't mean they have any sense of humanity. 
they know Hamas that even uh, 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 America's allies and uh, Israel's allies in America and Europe that they really hate Jews, the government so much that Israel will get blamed if they dare to go after Hamas. So Israel is the only country on the planet that's forced to live with these maniacs next door. Even though Egypt, which also shares a border with Gaza, they block them in as well. They don't want those animals in Egypt. There was just, uh, I think, 10 of them were killed over the weekend, soldiers in Egypt. Why? Where do you think they came from, the killers? Probably they had a tunnel from the Gaza Strip into the Sinai Peninsula. That's what Palestinians do. Hamas is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. When the president took over the country, he kicked out the Muslim Brotherhood and made them illegal. So naturally, Hamas wants to kill Egypt as well. That's what they are. So what is Israel supposed to think when their own biggest ally has the party that's in charge is rabidly anti-Israel? They know it. They know who runs uh, the Democratic Party. It's not Joe Biden. It's it's AOC. It's Ilhan Omer. It's, it's the far left. It's Elizabeth Warren. This is what, what choice they have. They feel if we really go after these people, God knows what's going to happen to us. So it's worth it to tolerate some of this insane violence from these psychos instead of just killing them. It's completely bizarre. Israel should ignore all of this noise and kill every last thing in Gaza that holds a weapon. If civilians are unfortunately killed, Israel can respond the way Putin has in the Ukraine, the way America did in Iraq, and the way they did in Afghanistan. Whoops. Sorry. Only Israel has to answer for killing a human shield. When America kills an entire wedding party in Afghanistan, 12, 13 people, they don't even apologize. And of course, the the double standard, the reason why it's so difficult for Israel is that even their purported supporters in America, American Jews, are huge supporters by like 75% of the Democratic Party, the very party that hates their guts. And I got to tell you, I'm sick of complaining about it. I've been saying the same thing for 50 years since I'm a little kid. No one listens. Eventually, Israel will suffer a devastating attack by Hamas or Hezbollah from Lebanon. Tens of thousands will be killed. And finally, Israeli leaders can puff out their chests and say, see, now we're morally permitted to fight back hard. It's ridiculous that it has to um, go for to that length. <clears throat> but as I've said, we dropped two atom bombs on Japan in World War II. We killed 150,000 people, many innocents, in Japan. And that's awful. You have to admit that it's awful. But it saved millions of American lives. This is an equation. It was a great trade-off. Israel should think the same way about the Palestinians. If many need to be killed in order to stop the terrorism, in order to get them to agree to live peacefully next to Israel, in order to get them their own state, not run by Muslim terrorists that are genocidal, Nazi-loving maniacs, it's got to get done. If it's going to save some Israeli lives, it's got to get done. It has to be done. Palestinian lives are not worth the same as Israeli lives when you're Israeli and you're making decisions on how to keep people alive. You have to make a choice. Who am I going to protect more? I've got to value my country more. Whoever has the might gets to make that awful decision. And honestly, what Palestinians even give to the world but misery and death? It's time to stop pretending that these are such valuable people who are 
held back by Hamas. If only Hamas wasn't in charge. They voted for Hamas. They're overwhelmingly popular. They love them. I know it's sad to say, but not every country has the, the same merit, the same value to the world. A Muslim terror state which celebrates Hitler, which honor kills their daughters, which lynches gays, which brainwashes their children to kill for Allah, which celebrates the murder of children. They come in last in terms of the value of that country. No one would give a goddamn if they vanished. And I'm not calling for them to be genocided, if that's a word. I'm just saying, listen, if they're going to continue with the terrorism, you got to go in there and kill everything that's firing a weapon. Kill every terrorist. And that's it and see what's left. That's how the world works. That's how it's worked in every war. That's how it's working today in wars that are going on right now. There's more people upset about Israel for daring to try to go after a terrorist who just cut off the head of a child than there is about Putin in the Ukraine who's killed, I don't know, tens of thousands of people. Now on another topic, if, if the idiotic American Jews, and I really hate uh, liberal American Jews, the, the ones that voted for Biden, which is like 75% of the Jews in America, they voted for Obama, you know, even though he was clear that he hated Israel, hates Jews. They'd vote for Hitler if he was a Democrat. If you need some more evidence that you're hated by your own party, Joe Biden just replaced Jen Psaki with a black lesbian Jew-hating secretary, press secretary. And she happens to be married to a CNN reporter. It's like, it's perfect. The Democrats care so little about what's right care so little about the conflicts of interest that they couldn't care less that, less that this black lesbian is going to surely be influenced by her wife, this Suzanne Malveaux, the reporter from CNN. Why should it make a difference that the person who speaks for the president has a massive conflict of interest with like, you know, one of the main liberal networks on TV? The person who speaks for the president is laying in bed with a leftist news organization and she'll be fielding questions from them every day? Democrats don't care as long as the boxes are checked, as long as the boxes are checked, which the, the people in charge of the party must have. It's all identity politics. The woman's black check. She's a lesbian or trans or has a penis sticking out of her forehead. Checkity check. She hates Jews. Woo. Bingo. The squad is so happy. So are the 75% of American Jews who vote Democrat. They're so happy, too. They can exhale and say, ugh, we're not racist. We vote Democrat. See, we've got a black uh, lesbian in charge of the press secretary office, and she hates our guts. But look at us. We're not racist. And it's not like Democrats are going to be punished for hiring this, like, maniac Jew hater as secretary. They won't lose one Jewish vote, and they know it. This Corrine uh, Jean-Pierre, the new press secretary, she once urged Democrats to skip a meeting of, the, uh, of AIPAC, which is the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, claiming that AIPAC was severely racist. AIPAC is racist. But Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, they're not racist at all. They're not racist at all. AIPAC is you know, relatively uncontroversial. It's been around for 60 years. But the new press secretary basically says that AIPAC is a racist organization. And she said, quote, when it comes down to it, APAC's policies are not progressive policies. APAC's values are not progressive values. That's what she wrote in an op-ed in 2019. It's time to call a spade a spade. She ironically said, it sure as hell is time to call a spade a spade. APAC isn't progressive because it's Jewish. That's what she means. She said, you cannot call yourself a progressive while continuing to associate yourself with an organization like APAC, 
That's what she said. What she really means is you can't support Israel and be a progressive. You just can't because to us, Israel is the worst. Now, of course, she worked for Obama's 2008 and 2012 presidential campaigns. What a shock. A Jew hater. Uh, we know this is a guy who was in the pews for 20 years while his reverend Jeremiah Wright is blasting Israel, blasting America. I guess he missed those. He wasn't listening uh, during those sermons for 20 years. Somehow Obama and Hillary Clinton, though, attended the yearly APAC conferences in 2007. But once the Democratic Party shifted even further left, means they didn't have to pretend anymore that they hated Jews, that they didn't hate Jews. APAC suddenly became the KKK. And of course, American Jews just obey which is just truly sick shit. And I'm frankly sick and tired of, uh, of even talking about it. It's, it's, it's like just nauseating shit. One more quick topic is the Roe v. Wade, the leaked decision. No one's really talking about the decision itself, which simply returns the decision of abortion to individual states. What Roe v. Wade actually got wrong when it was decided 50 years ago was to tie abortion rights to the viability of the fetus outside of the womb to make abortion legal until the point that the fetus was viable outside the womb. So in 1973, when Roe was decided, the fetus was thought to be able to be viable possibly outside the womb at around 28 weeks of gestation. So the decision focused on trimesters of pregnancy. You know, the last trimester, you couldn't have abortion because the baby was viable. It was, in essence, a live being. and as I said, Roe v. Wade allowed states to make a decision on how to handle abortions in the third trimester when the fetus was viable. The subsequent Supreme Court decision that sort of altered Roe v. Wade a little bit was Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992. And in that decision, they recognized that Roe v. Wade, the decision about viability would change with better technology and keeping fetuses alive outside the womb now, instead of being 28 weeks, as it was back in 73, in 1992, was thought to be closer to 22 weeks where there was a possibility of viability. They got away from the, the trimester framework and permitted individual states to regulate abortion in ways not posing an undue burden on the right of the mother to an abortion at any point before viability. And as I said, due to the technological medical advancements in the 20 years from Roe v. Wade, to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, viability itself was, was disassociated uh, from the law because children could live longer outside of the womb. And as now, 43 states have laws restricting post-viability abortions, which you'd like to think, you know, you know listen, I'm pro-choice, but Jesus H. Christ, do you really think that kids or fetuses, I'll call them fetuses because they're still inside the woman, do you really think that they should be aborted when if they were removed from the they removed from the mother that they could live i mean without any medical help i i find that to be kind of gross i think you know if 22 weeks is the stage i mean that should be it the absolute last time before you can get an abortion and i'm pro choice Anyway, the new decision overturning Roe v. Wade ignores all that and simply returns the rights um, of abortion to individual states. Now, the leaked decision is out. Naturally, liberals put out publicly the addresses of the Supreme Court justices who overturn Roe v. Wade, and they're protesting loudly outside the houses in an attempt to intimidate these justices. What a shock. And the White House is not discouraging it. They said, you know, there's peaceful protests. For some reason, 
They're okay with that. They're okay with burning down cities. They, even though that was violent, but those were not peaceful. They didn't care. Uh, excuse me, not the White House Democrats back then when George Floyd was killed. Eventually there will be violence. Somebody will get killed, uh, much like after the George Floyd murder. But this is what it is in America. We're completely divided. The country needs a national divorce because, frankly, we can't live uh, together anymore as far as I'm concerned. Uh, give the left New York, California, uh, give them some of the East Coast up north, give them the entire West Coast, and let them all live there. They can cram them into tiny apartments. That's what they love. And let the rest of the country live in the, in the red middle. Thank you for listening to me today. That was a long episode. I apologize, uh, but you, you made it through, I hope. Um, you can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. You can go to beyondthelegallimit.com if you want to email me your thoughts. And uh, hope to see you next week. Thank you.